we're going to be continuing on in Nehemiah, and we're going to be in chapter 4 today. So go ahead and open up in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 4. And if you guys are taking notes today, which I would encourage you to be taking notes, we're looking at a message entitled, guys, let's, uh, let's focus now. It's time for the word. Thank you. We're looking at a message entitled Building Through Adversity. Building Through Adversity. Nehemiah 4, verses 1 through 14. So you guys have probably heard that word adversity, right? I would assume that most of us have at least heard the word. Uh, maybe not all of us would know how to define it. So that's where we're going to start today because you're going to hear me use that word adversity a lot today because it lines up with what we're talking about in Nehemiah 4. So the word adversity, you guys, is an event or series of events which oppose. That's, that's kind of like the shortened up version of that definition, which is an event or series of events that oppose. And today we're going to see the adversity that Nehemiah and the builders, the rest of the Jews, are encountering, okay? But before we do that, I wanted to share with you guys a story. How many of you guys have ever heard the name Louis Zamperini? Okay, we have a couple of hands. So how many of you guys have heard of the movie Unbroken? Have you heard of the movie? Let's go to the next slide. I'll give you an image this is Louis, well, this is the actor who played Louis Zamperini in the movie Unbroken. Uh, guys, the movie Unbroken is a phenomenal movie. It might be PG-13, so definitely check with your parents before just watching it. Uh, but, shh. guys, let's bring it back. Let's bring it back. So Louis Zamperini, I want to tell you guys a little bit about his life because he is a man who faced a lot of adversity. So Louis, he was born to two Italian immigrants in 1917. He actually grew up in Torrance, California, which if you know where that's at, it's only about an hour or so away from here. Um, and he actually grew up and was a phenomenal runner. He was a track and field athlete who, I mean, he was a stud. In high school, he was breaking ref records left and right. And then he actually ended up going to represent the United States in the Olympics in 1936 when he was about, I think he was 18 or 19 years old, so right around there. Uh, but after competing in the, Olympics, the Olympic Games and doing really well, he actually joined the United States Army Air Forces. And uh, in the in the Army Air Forces. He served as a bombardier in a B-24 Liberators in the Pacific Ocean. That's kind of where he was stationed. And one day, while on a search and rescue mission with his team, uh, his plane actually malfunctioned, and he ends up going down. And uh, him and his crewmates, uh, most of them died, but him and two other guys actually lived. And they were actually stranded at sea for 47 days. Now, you'll notice in the picture from the movie there, there's only two guys. And that's because the other crewmate unfortunately passed away in those 47 days. So the story doesn't end here for Louis, though. Uh, while drifting out at sea, he unfortunately, uh, they come to the shores of the Marshall Islands, which is Japanese-occupied Japanese territory. And him and his buddy there become prisoners of war. And while being a prisoner of war, uh, he is actually tortured for, for two years. Uh, every single day he wakes up, he's beaten, uh, he's, he's mocked, he's ridiculed by that guy. You can see the back of his head. Let's go to the next picture. You could get a better picture of this guy. Uh, known as the Bird. That was kind of his nickname, was the Bird. And this guy, uh, his real name was Mutsuhiro Watanabe. And this guy, for whatever reason, hated Louis Zamperini, like more than the other prisoners of war. There were other prisoners of war in the camp, but for whatever reason, this guy really disliked Louis. And so because he knew Louis was a ex-track and field athlete, what he would do is actually, and mind you, when you're a prisoner of war, like you're not getting enough food, like you're malnourished, you're being beaten, your body's always in pain. But this guy makes Louis uh, race around the prison camp uh, like he's a track and field athlete again, even though his body can't really do it. So this guy just really had it out for Louis. But good news is the war ends up, World War II, that is, ends up ending, and Louis gets to come home. And it's great. 
Uh, but unfortunately, when Louis comes home, he has a very real and serious battle with PTSD, which if you guys know anything about PTSD, you know that it is very, very hard for an ex-military or ex-police, even fire, uh, is very hard for them to endure that just because of all the memories that they have to deal with. So Louis, he makes it back home, but he, he deals with this fight uh, against PTSD, and it ends up really taking a toll on his life. But in the end, uh, he ends up finding Jesus, uh, thanks to uh, Billy Graham, if you guys know who that is, the famous evangelist, actually gets connected with Louis, leads him to Christ, and Louis's life becomes a testimony of God's forgiveness because he actually finds the guy who tortured him and forgives the man for all the wrong that he did towards him. So I think it's safe to say that, that Louis, his life was full of adversity, right? He, his life, would, we would say, is a life where he experienced a lot of successes, but also a lot of setbacks. Think about it. He grew up in a rough environment, yet he succeeded and made it all the way to the Olympic Games, which is very hard to do, even back then. Uh, yet, uh, when he joined the military, you could say that was another success, but another setback happens in his life where his plane malfunctions and he goes down. Right? And then he becomes a prisoner of war and is just living in that setback. But then the success, he gets to come home. But then another setback, the PTSD, ultimately ending with the success of finding Jesus. But this is a man who knew adversity. And in to today's message in Nehemiah 4, we're going to be looking at the adversity that Nehemiah and the builders would face. This is essentially their first real experience with like big adversity. You could say that they had other adversities kind of in the chapters leading up to where we are today, but this is kind of the main adversity that they have faced at this point. So uh, in some context, let's remind ourselves kind of where we are in Nehemiah. So in chapter one, you guys, if you remember it all, this whole thing started with a burden on Nehemiah's heart. You remember that when uh, Pastor Joel taught you guys about how Nehemiah's heart was burdened for the city of Jerusalem and the fact that the walls were laid waste and it, it, it hurt him. He was broken over it. And then in chapter two, we see how the king at the time actually gives Nehemiah the rights to go and rebuild the city. He says, Nehemiah, go. He commissions him to go and do the work which God was stirring up in Nehemiah's heart. And then in chapter three last week, uh, you guys learned all about how the progress of the wall was going. Last week was kind of uh, that construction chapter, if you will, of this guy was doing this and this group was doing this. And we got to learn all about the progress on the wall. And here we are today, which like we said, is the first real resistance and adversity that Nehemiah and the Jews were going to experience in rebuilding the wall. So you should be in Nehemiah 4, yes? Look with me to verse 1. We're going to read all the verses right now, so try and stay with me. But what I want to encourage you to do, when I read stories like this, I try and like get a visual picture in my head. I try and actually picture what's going on here. So try and do that as we read this. Verses are also on the screen, um, as well as in your Bible, which I think is even better. Just look down if you do have a Bible. But verse 1 says, But so it happened when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, that he was furious and very indignant and mocked the Jews. And he spoke before his brethren and the army of Samaria and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish, stones that are burned? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Whatever they build, if even a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O God, this is Nehemiah now, in verse 4, he says, Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn their reproach on their own heads and give them as plunder to a land of captivity. Do not cover their iniquity and do not let their sin be blotted out from before you. For they have provoked you to anger before the builders. Verse 6, so we built the wall and the entire wall was joined together up to half its height for the people had a mind to work. Now it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were being restored and the gaps were beginning to be closed, that they became very angry. And all of them conspired 
to come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. Verse 9, Nevertheless, we made our prayer to our God, and because of them, we set a watch against them day and night. Then Judah said, The strength of the laborers is failing, and there is so much rubbish that we are not able to build the wall. And our adversaries said, They will neither know nor see anything till we come into their midst and kill them and cause the work to cease. So it was when the Jews who dwelt near them came that they told us ten times, from whatever place you turn, they will be upon us. Therefore, I positioned men behind the lower parts of the wall at the openings and set the people according to their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles, to the leaders, and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. Let's pray. God, we come before you, Lord, and, and we recognize that your word is alive. God, that these words on the page that we're looking at right now, God, they're, they're not just written for us to... Uh, just have story time right now, Lord, but that there are truths in here that directly apply to our lives, God. And we ask that you would just teach us your word today, and God, that we would walk away ready to live these things out for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you guys are taking notes, the first point we are going to be looking at, number one, is the adversity they faced. So we define that word adversity as an event or series of events that oppose. Now we're going to look at the adversity that Nehemiah and the builders were facing. So here in the beginning of chapter four, you guys, we're reintroduced to these guys, Sanballat and Tobiah. Now, when I think of Sanballat and Tobiah, these are the guys that I think of. This is what I think they look like. You guys know who that is? That's Tweedledee and Tweedledum from Alice in Wonderland. But with just the way with just the way that Sanballat and Tobiah are in this portion of scripture, this is just the image that comes to my head. I picture them looking like that, just like, you can't build a wall, you know, just acting, acting all weird like that. But anyway, we're reintroduced to these guys, Sanballat and Tobiah. And these guys, let me, let me tell you a little bit about who they were. They lived in the nations that surrounded Jerusalem. And so when they find out that the Jews are rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, they're like, nope not going to happen. It was something that really upset them, and they weren't just going to stand there and let it happen. So ultimately, you guys, Sanballat and Tobiah, what I want you to understand is they were instruments in the hands of Satan, really is what they were, because Satan was the number one opponent to the work of rebuilding the wall, just like Satan is the number one opponent in your life. He is our number one enemy. But Sanballat, he comes to the Jews, he comes against them, and he is mad. It says that he's furious and very indignant, meaning he's like burning with anger because of what the Jews are doing in rebuilding the wall. And in verse 2 and 3, look back with me in your Bibles, you see how Sanballat, he's making all these sarcastic uh, rhetorical questions saying, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Will they, re will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish, stones that are burned? And then Tobiah jumps in, and he thinks he's funny, and he says, yeah, whatever they build, if even a fox goes up on it, they're gonna, it it'll break down their, their measly little wall. And what ultimately Sanbal and Tobiah, what they're trying to do is they're trying to discourage the Jews. They're trying to discourage Nehemiah and the Jews from rebuilding the wall. And when you think about it, we're going to make the connection. This actually really closely relates to the Christian life, you guys, because if you call yourself a Christian today, you are a builder of the kingdom of God. You're not out building a wall around the church, but you are going into the world and you are building God's kingdom. That is what God has called you to do, to spread the gospel and to build his kingdom. And unfortunately, I think there's so many Christians, way too many Christians, who don't see themselves as builders. They just see themselves, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, but I'm not actually going to go live it out. I'm not actually going to go spread the gospel. I'm not actually going to go do this for the Lord. 
And I want to challenge you if that's how you think sometimes James in the book of James actually says that that's the kind of faith that is dead. That's the kind of faith that really isn't a faith at all. Because as Christians, our faith is to be coupled with action. All right. But essentially what's going on here, you guys, is Satan, he hated the fact that the wall was being rebuilt. And he hates that you are a builder of the kingdom of God. And like we said, he's our number one enemy. He is the enemy of our souls. And that's because God's kingdom and Satan's kingdom are in direct opposition to one another. They can't coexist. Now, here's the thing. God has allowed Satan to establish his kingdom on this earth for a while. The Bible even says that he is the ruler of this world. God has allowed that for the time being. But in the end, if you know your Bibles, you know that Jesus is going to come back and is going to squash the kingdom of Satan and usher in God's true uh, kingdom forever. And so just like in the Christian life, you guys, Satan wants to stop us. And here's the thing about Satan, though. He's a big dummy, all right? And he uses the same tricks uh, to stop us from living uh, for Jesus and building God's kingdom. Same stuff. So I think, in my opinion, if we can understand some of the, the tactics and the tricks that he uses, I think we could better fight back. And I think we need to fight back. We don't just roll over and play dead and let Satan have his way. No, we fight back against his tactics. So we're going to look at three ways. And by no means are these the only three ways that Satan works against us. But these are three of what I would say are some of the main ways. So number one, one way that Satan tries to stop us, you guys, I would encourage you to at least write uh, what it is. You don't need to write all the sub points. But number one is sin. And I would argue that this is probably the main thing that Satan uses against every believer. His goal is to get you to live a life of sin. That's what he wants. Sin is a part of his kingdom. Holiness is a part of God's kingdom, right? And Satan wants you to live in sin. He is stoked when your life is all wrapped up in sin. And it's because he knows that when we're living a life full of sin, you guys, he knows we're not going to be any use to, God's building, to building God's kingdom. We'll be a vessel of dishonor, as the Bible says, if we're living in sin, which we don't want to do. But it makes sense because we all know deep down that when we're living in sin, that we can't do anything useful for the Lord. We won't do anything useful for the Lord. When you're living in sin, you don't want to go out and you don't want to go to uh, this church event because you know, you know what you're really doing, what your life looks like behind closed doors. But here's the encouragement with this, you guys. If Satan has you wrapped up in a life of sin, maybe you came today and you're like, you know what, that's me. Satan's really got me living in sin right now. Here's the encouragement. Repentance is only one prayer away. And that's biblical. Because if you look at 1 John 1, 9, this, this verse right here is a verse that I would encourage all of you to write down and memorize. Uh, there, you know, you should me practice memorizing scriptures. But you should also memorize scriptures that are like a part of your tool belt, if that makes sense. Like things that you can use against the enemy. Because that's what Jesus did in Matthew chapter 4 is he used scripture to fight off the temptations of Satan. But 1 John 1, 9, you guys, repentance is only one prayer away because it says there, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Here's the thing about God, you guys, is God gives us forgiveness freely. It's not like he has it on a string, like uh, how you tie a carrot like to a bunny and they're running around trying to chase the carrot and we're running around trying to chase forgiveness. That's not how God works. God freely gives us forgiveness when we confess our sins to him and we draw near with a heart of repentance. But what's another way that Satan tries to come against us? Number two is lies and deception. Write that down. Lies and deception. Now, the Bible refers to Satan as the father of lies. Have you ever heard that? The Bible actually says that Satan himself is the father of lies. He's done it since the very beginning. Even if you think back to the Garden of Eden, what did he do to Eve? He lied to her and he got her to believe the lie. But if Satan can get us to believe the lies that he tells us, you guys, the lies about God, 
the lies about ourselves, the lies about sin itself, the lies about the world, and so on and so forth, he can effectively stop us from being good builders of God's kingdom. So I want to I think with you guys for a moment. There, some of them are up there. But what are, what are some of the lies that we hear often uh, Satan kind of throws at us? And this almost always happens in our minds, right? That's how Satan attacks us mostly is in our minds. And what are some of the lies that he tries to get us to believe? Well, I think we've all wrestled with the thought of, well, God doesn't love me. Satan would love for you to believe that, but it's a lie. Because if you think about it, God says he loves you numerous times in his word. What about this one? God's not with you. Wouldn't Satan love for us to believe that? What about this one? You're worthless. I'm not telling you guys you're worthless. But does he not bring that thought into our minds sometimes of us having to wrestle with our, our self-worth? The answer is yes. What about no one cares about you? We know that these are all lies because the way that we can distinguish them as lies, gentlemen, let's pay attention. I can hear you from up here, so that's obviously too loud. You're not being secret about it. But the ways that we can distinguish these as lies, you guys, is we line them up to what God's word says. And we're going to talk more about that in just a moment. But as you grow in the Lord, as you grow in your faith, you get better and better at discerning what is a lie and what is the truth in terms of these thoughts that enter into our head. The Bible tells us that we're to take these thoughts captive, all right, and bring them into the obedience of Christ. The thoughts are going to happen. Satan's going to fire his darts at us all the time, and you need to know how to handle it. So I want to share with you what, when I heard it for the first time from Pastor Jack years back, it just, it made so much sense to me, and it just clicked. That verse that talks about taking our thoughts captive, this is what it looks like. So you're standing here, right? And you're just kind of living life and you're living for Jesus. And you have what the, Satan over here, he fires an arrow. And it's always in your thought life is how it happens. He fires that fiery arrow into your mind. And here's what you do in that moment. Okay, boom, thought enters in. What do you do? You stop for a moment. You analyze the thought. You think about the thought. Okay, wait. Let's, let's take that first example. God doesn't love me? And you're like, uh, okay, computing, you know. And you think about it for a moment, and you're like, wait a second. I know that the Bible tells me that God so loved the world, which includes me, that he gave his only begotten son to die for my sins so I could have everlasting life. I know that God loves me. And so you're like, okay, that's a thought from the enemy. So what do you do? You take that thought, you get rid of it, and you fill your mind with the things of God. That's that illustration. That's how it made sense to me when I uh, heard it explained that way. So I hope that it helps you as well. But finally, I want to look at one more way that Satan tries to stop us. And that is through discouragement. Write that down. Discouragement. Satan, you guys, he is so, so good at this one. The other ones are a little bit like we can fight back against not sinning by walking in holiness. That We know that's our daily goal. We can recognize the lies of the enemy. The more we're in the word, the more we know what God says about us and what, you know, who he is. But this one's a this one's pretty, pretty tricky. Because even Christians sometimes find themselves feeling very discouraged. Satan, he is really good at making both non-believers and believers feel discouraged in their walks with the Lord. And you guys, if he can make us discouraged, he can make us not want to do God's work. And isn't this, like going back to Nehemiah 4, isn't this what Sanballat and Tobiah are doing to Nehemiah and the Jews, right? They're making fun of them. They're, they're telling these jokes. They're trying to scare them to ultimately discourage them from continuing the work of rebuilding the wall. And unfortunately, you guys, I, I feel like I see way too many Christians walking around with their heads hanging low, you know, not physically always, but it's like it's happening within them that their spirit is just discouraged at all times. When in reality, the Bible says that the joy of the Lord is our strength. 
God wants you to walk in joy, not discouragement. God is not in the business of discouragement. God is not up in heaven thinking of ways of how he can make you feel discouraged about yourself and, and your life. But Satan, he, that's what he loves to do. But God wants you to be encouraged. And when we fall, you guys, because in the Christian life, like we do fall. We stumble. We trip in sin. Uh, we, we sometimes we let ourselves get too down or whatever it may be. We don't just stay face flat on the ground, discouraged, and just lay there like, oh, I'm never getting up. No, God doesn't want that. God wants you to stand back up. Rather, you're, you, what you do in that moment is you turn to the, Lord, to the Lord and you're like, Lord, help me. And what he does is he swoops you up, stands you back on your feet, and guess what he tells you? He says, get moving again. Get back to work. Right? God doesn't want us to just lay face flat. It's okay to fall flat and to repent, but God would tell you to keep building, to keep building his kingdom. And so we see in verse 10 of Nehemiah 4 that discouragement was something that the builders had to resist. And I want to share this story with you guys. This, when I read this story the other day, uh, you're going to learn really quickly, this is not a real story, but I mean, it's an it's a illustration. But when I read this the other day, uh, man, did it hit me hard. Um, it was, it's powerful. So just, just listen, and like we did with Nehemiah 4, try and get that mental image going in your mind as I read this to you. Legend has it that one day the devil was having a garage sale and put his tools out, marking each one with a price. Some of the tools included were hatred, envy, jealousy, deceit, lying, and pride. Laid apart from these was a rather harmless looking but well-worn tool marked at an extremely high price. A buyer pointed to this isolated tool and asked, what is the name of this tool? The devil replied, that is discouragement. The buyer responded, and why have you priced it so high? To which the devil said, because it is more useful to me than the others. I can pry open a man's heart with that when I cannot get near to him with the other tools. Once inside, I can make him do whatever I choose. It is badly worn because I use it on almost everyone since so few people know it belongs to me. The devil's price for discouragement was so high, it is said that the tool was never sold. He continues to use it on God's people, causing spiritual growth to be stifled and many a worthwhile Christian projects to grind to a halt. Isn't that powerful? To think that Satan has all these tools that he uses against us, but the one he often uses the most because of how effective it can be against us is discouragement. And like we said, God's not in the business of us being discouraged. He wants us to be encouraged. But back to, uh, well, really quick, I'll make a, a little plug for the book, uh, Strategies of Satan, if you guys have never heard of it. Uh, phenomenal book by Warren Wiersbe. If, you're, if this is like, yeah, you know, I want to learn more about the ways that Satan tries to come at me. Uh, this book is, is a very small book. You could probably read it in a couple of days if you really wanted to. Uh, but it's called The Strategies of Satan, if you wanted to write it down. And it's all about things like this, recognizing the ways that the enemy tries to come against us. So get your hands on it. It's in the bookstore, I'm almost positive, uh, as long as they're stocked up on it. But I know we carry it here. But back to Nehemiah 4, you guys. Look down in verses 7 through 8 and uh, 10 and 12 also. We see here that Sanballat of Samaria, Tobiah, and the surrounding nations, they get word of the progress that's happening on the wall, right? It says that the wall was officially joined together. Remember that image that Joel showed you guys last week of the kind of the oval shape or whatever you want to call it of the, the, the wall that was being built? Well, now at this point in the story, the wall is actually all connected. There's no more gaps. It says the gaps were closed. And the wall is joined to half its height. I don't know what the, the end height of the wall would end up being. Uh, but the wall is essentially halfway done and it's fully connected all the way. So there's legitimate progress that is happening on the wall. And the enemies of Jerusalem, the Sanballat, Tobiah, and the surrounding nations, you guys, they hear about this and they get together and they're like, how can we kill these Jews and stop the work that they are doing? They did not want it to happen. 
Now, spoiler alert, their plans end up coming to nothing. That's awesome. But this shows us, and I want you guys to write this down, that quote on the bottom, that though adversity may continue to increase, God will not allow it to prevail. Write that down. Though adversity may continue to increase, God will not allow it to prevail. And that's true in our lives. The more we're building God's kingdom, the more adversity we're going to face. But God says he's never going to allow it to overcome us. And Satan, you guys, he absolutely hates it uh, when we are making progress in our lives. And you can be assured that as you grow in the Lord, like we said, you guys, there's going to be more adversity. I have a very simple equation that is on the slide up there. As you increase in your spiritual progress, as you become more of what God wants you to be, you can bet that there's going to be an increase in spiritual warfare. That's important for you to understand because as people walk with the Lord, when things start getting tougher and they're like, wait, I thought when I was going to be a Christian and living for the Lord, my life was going to get easier. Nope, <laughs> it's going to get harder. There's going to be more adversity. But guess what? God gives you the strength to face it and he will not allow it to overcome you. Romans 8.31 says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And that's the difference with adversity, you guys. Yes, we're going to face a lot of adversity in our Christian walks, but God is for us, and because of that, none can be against us. I want you to write down our next point, if you are taking notes, which is the appeal they made. And we see this in verses 4 through 5. And also verse 9, the appeal they made. You're like, I don't know what he means by appeal. What I mean by appeal is essentially the prayer that they made. They appealed to God. That's what that word means. So we just learned and talked about for a while there all about the adversity that Nehemiah and the builders are facing here in chapter 4. But how did Nehemiah and the builders respond to the adversity? Well, if you look in verse 4... You see in verses 1 through 3 how Sambal and Tobiah, they're making all these jokes. They're coming against, they're threatening the Jews. And then what do we see in verse 4? We see Nehemiah go straight to prayer. I don't know about you, but when I look at my Bibles, I don't see any hesitation there. Right? It goes straight from Tobiah's dumb joke to Nehemiah's prayer to the Lord. And that's because Nehemiah, being a man of prayer, knew exactly what to do when the adversity came his way, which was he gave it straight to the Lord immediately. And you guys, we need to learn from Nehemiah's example. This is very important for us to understand here. When Satan attacks our lives, because he will, and when he brings adversity upon us, we need to go straight to the Lord in prayer with no hesitation, like Nehemiah did. No hesitation. We go straight to the Lord in prayer. And that's ultimately because, write it down, prayer is how we fight. Prayer is how we fight. You've all heard and sung along to the song, uh, Battle Belongs, if you've been here at the church for a little while. It's a great song. Super good by Phil Wickham. And there's that line in that song that you guys might recognize when I read it right now when it says, so when I fight, I'll fight on my knees with my hands lifted high. Oh God, the battle belongs to you. And every fear I lay at your feet, I'll sing through the night. Oh God, the battle belongs to you. And this, you guys, that is a perfect representation of what's going on here in Nehemiah, how Nehemiah is giving it to the Lord in prayer. He is fighting the battle through prayer. And this should be how we too handle adversity in our lives. But unfortunately, I think too many people, too many Christians, they struggle when adversity and trials come their way uh, because they try and handle it on their own. They're not going to the Lord in prayer. And if they are, it's like a it's like I wake up in the morning and just like 10 seconds, like, Lord, help me today. And that's it. Like, no, you got to go to the Lord in prayer. You got to spend that time with him. You got to give him the battle because prayer is how we fight. So what will you do uh, when you encounter adversity and trials in your life? 
I would challenge you to be like Nehemiah and take it directly to the Lord in prayer. You guys, go ahead and uh, turn to your Bibles, 2 Kings chapter 19. And leave, your, leave like a pen or something, a marker in uh, Nehemiah 4, because we'll be back there. But turn to 2 Kings 19. Should be to the left in your Bibles. Closer towards Genesis. You'll find it. Chapter 19. <clears throat> And we're going to be looking at verses 8 through 19, but we're actually going to spend, uh, we're actually going to read the verses in 35 through 37. So rather than me read you uh, this huge chunk of scripture, I'm just going to describe to you what's going on. So King Hezekiah is the guy that we're talking about here. Awesome king of Judah uh, that you can read more about in 2 Kings. Just loved the Lord, was a good king of Israel. There was a lot of bad kings in Israel. King Hezekiah was one of the good ones. And so this guy, the king of Assyria, uh, known as the Sennacherib, if I said that right, I don't know. Uh, but essentially, he comes against King Hezekiah and Judah and Assyria at this moment in history is very powerful. They got big armies. They've been conquering the nations left and right. Even, uh, it even mentions that how the king and the armies of Assyria, the enemy of King Hezekiah and Judah, uh, he, he talks about like, hey, we've been going around and we've been destroying this nation, this nation, this nation. And he says, Hezekiah, they all said that they had their gods. What makes you think that you're any different, Hezekiah? He's like, we're just going to conquer you too. And Hezekiah, being the man of God that he was, in verse 14, look, look with me real quick. It says, Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers. He read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. So Hezekiah literally gets the letter. He takes the letter. He, he goes up to the house of the Lord, the temple. He lays it out before the Lord. And what does that represent to us? It represents that Hezekiah took the adversity that he was facing, him in the kingdom of Judah. He took it to the Lord and laid it at the Lord's feet. And it says that he prayed to the Lord. And he asked for God's deliverance. And look with me to verse 35. Jump down some verses. We're going to read these. It says in verse 35, this is, so Hezekiah takes it to the Lord in prayer. Verse 35 through 37, we find out what happens. And it came to pass on a certain night that the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when people arose early in the morning, there were the corpses all dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went away, returned home and remained at Nineveh. Now it came to pass as he was worshiping in the temple of Nisroch, his god, that his sons Adremelech and Sharazer struck him down with the sword. So what's the end result of the story? Well, the guy comes against King Hezekiah, and ultimately comes against the Lord. Hezekiah takes the adversity straight to the Lord in prayer. And what does God do? Sends the angel of the Lord who kills 185,000 soldiers in the Assyrian camp. And the, you know, the king of Assyria ends up dying too. So what's the point of, in us even sharing that story? Is that prayer, you guys, changes things and is how we fight. I want you to write that down. Prayer changes things and is how we fight. So we just talked all about how Nehemiah went to the Lord in prayer. But you know what Nehemiah, Nehemiah also did is he took action. So point three, if you're taking notes, is the action they took. Write that down. The action they took. We see this in verse 6. Verse 9b, which really means the second half of verse 9, and uh, in verse 13. And what I love about Nehemiah's response to the adversity, you guys, is he didn't just pray, he also took action. 
In verse 6, you see with, with no hesitation, after Nehemiah takes it to the Lord in prayer, it says, so we built the wall. That did, the adversity did not stop them, just like adversity ought not to stop us. We see how Nehemiah and the builders, they stayed the course. They stayed true to the mission, and they did not let the adversity steer them away from what they knew God had called them to do, which was build the wall. And Nehemiah here, you guys, it, he shares the same mindset of Paul the Apostle in Acts 20. Just write down the reference to the verse. Acts 20, verse 22 through 24. It's on the screens for you to read along with me. It says, And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Nothing was going to stop Paul from sharing the gospel. No chain, no tribulation was going to stop him, just like nothing was going to stop Nehemiah from completing the work that God had given him to do. And because, like it says in the chapter, the people had a mind to work, the wall was going up super fast. They were making progress so quickly. In record time, we end up learning uh, later in the chapter. But look back down in your Bibles to verse 9 and 13, you guys. In these verses, we're not going to read them, but I just want you to see as I say this, we see how Nehemiah prayed, right? But we also see in these verses how he took action. And the way he took action was by setting a watch against the enemies. And you guys, when we pray, our prayer ought to be paired with action. I want you to write that down. Our prayer needs to be paired with action. Prayer, or prayer ought to be paired, paired with action. And unfortunately, I think a lot of Christians fall short in this way. A lot of believers are more than willing to pray, but there are a lot less willing to take action. And we see this especially in the realm of government, right? When the government is passing all these policies that are anti-God, anti- uh, or uh, pro-abortion, I should say. Uh, we see a lot of Christians who are willing to say, oh, yeah, you know, let's, let's use the example for abortion. Uh, oh, yeah, I know abortion's wrong. I know God's pro-life. I know God is the one who opens and closes the womb. I'll pray for that. But when you ask these people to get involved... They're like, uh, or you ask them to speak out. They're like, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know if I'm willing to do that. And you won't really see that here at this church. What I love about our church, you guys, is I don't know if any of you were there yesterday, but we actually did a prayer walk yesterday at Planned Parenthood. Did anyone go to that? Anyone? There was a, oh, awesome, a couple people. Uh, so what I love about our church, you guys, is they set the example here of, yes, we pray for the unborn. We all do that in our personal lives. And we pray as a church for the unborn child, but we don't stop there. We also get involved. When there's a policy that is uh, pro-abortion, that's going to make abortion easier, we're like, uh-uh, our church stands against it. We'll, we'll go down to Planned Parenthood and do pro, uh, pro-life walks and prayer walks like that. We have a pro-life ministry at the church. We are involved in the fight. You see, our prayers don't just stop there. We get involved. We pair it with action. And to illustrate this, this is a story of D.L. Moody. You guys might have heard that name before. I know Joel has talked about D.L. Moody before to you. Uh, D.L. Moody was a famous evangelist some time ago, and he was on a missions trip across the Atlantic Ocean when the ship that he and his buddy were on uh, actually caught fire. And so Moody and his friend, they join the crew and they're passing buckets around and they're pouring water on the fire. And Moody's friend, he turns to uh, D.L. Moody and he says, Mr. Moody, why don't we go to the other side of the ship and pray? And D.L. Moody looks at him and he says, no, sir, we stand right here and we pass buckets and pray hard all the time. You see, what D.L. Moody understood is we're praying we're going to pray, but we're going to act. We're going to pair it with action. We're going to put the fire out. 
And we need to be like that, you guys. We need to be the men and women of God who will pray, but will also stand up in the face of evil. Our last point today is number four, the almighty they trusted. The almighty they trusted. Write that down. And we see this in verse 14, kind of the highlight of the chapter, if you ask me. Verse 14 is awesome. But Nehemiah and the builders, you guys, they would have had every right to be panicking if they didn't trust in God Almighty. They would have, they, were they outnumbered? Yep. Were they outgunned? Even though there wasn't guns back there, it's the, the phrase, outgunned. Uh, yeah, they were. They were overpowered. They were not able to, they were not able to fight against these guys. Uh, but what did they know? They knew that they were trusting in the Lord of heaven's armies, that God was on their side. And because God was on their side and they were doing his work, they knew that nothing was going to be able to stop them. When the Jews who kind of dwelt in the area of the surrounding nations, they hear of the plans of Sanbal and Tobiah, I believe in seven, verse 7 and 8, uh, and how they plan to come and kill the Jews and confuse the work. They come and they tell Nehemiah and the builders, they're like, Nehemiah, Nehemiah, oh, thank goodness I found you. They're going to surround us and they're going to kill us. There's no way to escape. It actually says they say it 10 times. So these guys are like panicking. But what does Nehemiah do? It's, it's, it's as though Nehemiah turns and looks at them straight in the eyes and says, remember the Lord, verse 14, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. When we're faced with adversity, you guys, we must do this too. We must remember the God that we serve. We do not serve a small God who is incapable of delivering us. We serve the God of all creation, the Lord of hosts, the commander of the Lord's armies, we have no reason to fear. In Deuteronomy 31.6, amazing chapter of the Bible, Deuteronomy 31. Just note down the references. Verse 6 and verse 8. Verse 6 says, Be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be afraid of them. For the Lord your God, he is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. So we see in verse 6, God goes with you. In verse 8, it says, And the Lord, he is the one who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Do not fear nor be dismayed. Now, I wanted to show you guys a brief video from one of my favorite movies, which is Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. Um, yeah, I know a lot of you guys like Lord of the Rings just from some of my conversations with you guys. If you haven't seen Lord of the Rings yet, I would ask your parents, because I believe it is a PG-13 movie, definitely get permission before watching it. Shh. We're not going to get to the video if you guys keep talking. But what I'm about to show you is one of the main characters. His name is Aragorn. He's like the main dude. And this is the final battle. Shh. This is the final battle of the final movie. Like, this is it. This is the end. And this is his speech to his soldiers who are severely outnumbered and overpowered by the enemy. Let's go ahead and go to the, go to the video.
I wish I could. Uh, I wish I could show you guys the the rest of the film, but uh, you'll definitely have to, like I said, go go check with your parents if you're able to watch it because it is PG-13. There's some intense moments and some violence, but shh, let's bring it back. So why did I even bother showing you guys that speech? Well, because you can clearly see in that portion of the movie that they are surrounded on all sides. They're outnumbered. They're outgunned. Shh. But what does Aragorn, who I would say represents Nehemiah uh, in what we're learning about today, what does he do? He turns to the men and he he strengthens them. You could see in the clip the guys who are standing there, they look terrified, and they should be. There's no way they can win this fight on their own. But Aragorn reminds them, he reminds them that they're fighting against evil and that they're on the side of good. And he reminds them that they're fighting for their families, much like Nehemiah told his men, in verse 14. So in conclusion, you guys, I want you to write down these takeaways. What I mean by takeaways is if you can remember these handful of things I put here at the end, then I think you get the point of what we talked about today. Number one, if you're a believer, if you call yourself a Christian, you are a kingdom builder, okay? There is no opting out of being a kingdom builder, you're a believer, you're a kingdom builder, which means that you will surely face adversity. Because why? Well, Satan hates us, you guys, and he's going to try and stop us any way he can. But if we understand his tactics, if we understand his schemes and the ways he tries to stop us, we'll be able to fight back against him even better. And remember that God is on your side and will give you the strength you need to face the adversity. And the next thing, when faced with adversity, you guys, we got to go straight to the Lord in prayer. It's a non-negotiable. If you try and face adversity on your own, good luck. God has called us to take our adversities, our trials, and our struggles to him in prayer. Prayer matters, you guys, and it's how we fight. Next thing is that prayer should be paired with action. We don't just pray and do nothing. We pray and we stand against evil. And then finally, in the face of adversity, you guys, we look to God Almighty and we trust him because we know he is our strength and our refuge. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word and just how awesome it is, Lord, and how we have these accounts and these stories like what we learned about in Nehemiah 4 today. God, of just... How, how do we handle adversity in our lives, Lord? And we know, God, from learning today, Lord, that we take our adversity to you because we know that we're, we cannot do it on our own, Lord. We give it to you. Like Hezekiah laid the letter before you, Lord, we lay our trials and our struggles and our adversities at your feet. But God, we don't just pray, Lord. We take action. We stand up against evil. God, we thank you. For this time, we pray that you would help us to live these things out today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.